You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. I'm Berta Twisselman, one of the BMJ's web editors. This week, it's all about chronic fatigue syndrome. In October last year, in the journal Science, a paper was published that suggested a link between a new virus, the xenotrophic murine leukemia virus-like virus, and a syndrome. Duncan Jarvis will be looking at the evidence behind this postulated link, and he will be finding out more about the history and treatment of the condition. But before all that, here's Richard Hurley with this week's news. So, Rich, what have you got for us this week? Hi there, Berta. Well, first of all, I wanted to talk about uh, the lead news story in this week's print issue, which is about doctors facing a greater risk of prosecution if they help a patient to commit suicide. Final guidelines in England and Wales from the Director of Public Prosecutions have been updated from interim guidelines um, after attracting 5,000 responses. Previously, medical professionals who helped patients to commit suicide would be treated like family members or friends, but now their involvement is actually a factor in favour of prosecution. Gosh, so is, is this a surprising outcome? It seems strange to me that it hasn't been dealt with um, you know, through primary legislation rather mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. at this sort of lower level. The recommendation for doctors who are approached by patients for advice about suicide is that they should not engage in discussions that help patients to that end. They should contact um, their defence union, defence organisation for advice. So what else have you got for us this week? Well, I was also interested in the um, the two analysis articles that we have recently published about um, how doctors can avoid complicity in torture. The torture of detainees in Guantanamo Bay and in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the so-called war against terror is in the news a lot recently. And these two articles look at how doctors can avoid complicity in torture which is a clear breach of their ethical obligations. The first of the analysis articles considers a new UN resolution which targets states um, and acts to or seeks to protect um, doctors and other health professionals who stand up against their states requiring them to take part in acts of torture. And the second analysis article looks at psychiatrists assessing prisoners for torture And this is interesting because a 1990s study in Denmark of refugee survivors of torture found that 20% reported medical professionals' involvement in their torture. Right. Well, thanks for that. And what is your next story? Well, another article that that caught my eye was the editorial about the um, revision to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Okay, and what are the innovations? What what are the changes? Well, there's some controversy surrounding um, five proposed new diagnoses with non-specific symptoms. And according to the author of this editorial, because these occur at the boundary of mental disorder and normality, they could create vast numbers of misdiagnosed new patients. Okay, any other notable changes? Well, I thought it was also interesting that the author doesn't mention the controversial diagnoses of gender identity disorder. Um, Apparently, these diagnoses are based on discomfort surrounding the assigned gender, but the inclusion of this diagnosis is controversial and offensive to some trans people. Um, So, yeah, I was wondering whether it's time the DSM dropped the inclusion of gender identity disorder. And so I've started a discussion on Doc to Doc, 
um, the BMJ Group social networking site. So it would be really interesting uh, to hear your views on that. Well, thanks, Rich. And you can find all these stories and more online on bmj.com. And with regard to the first story on assisted suicide, uh, we have a reader's poll also on bmj.com. Now, Duncan Jarvis is finding out all about chronic fatigue syndrome. Chronic fatigue syndrome is confusing. It's gone by various names in the past. The etiology is currently unknown and there aren't any diagnostic tests or biomarkers for it. Various causal agents have been suggested in the past and a new one, XMRV, has been in the news recently. First to explain some background, I'm joined by Simon Wesley. Simon's a chair of the Department of Psychological Medicine at King's College London and he also founded the first NHS unit to treat people with chronic fatigue syndrome and he's also written extensively on it in the past. So Simon, for a start, in your experience, how would you characterise chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, I think it is, much as you described, it is a controversial and rather difficult area of medicine. Uh, it's certainly not new, and uh, you know the difficulty comes from the very things you've established, that this is defined on symptoms alone, on the history alone, where you have a characteristic pattern of someone with severe physical fatigue and fatigability. In other words, it's not just that they feel, you know, very tired all the time, but physical effort makes them worse. And they also have mental fatigue and mental fatigability. So mental fatigue also uh, leaves them in a state of exhaustion. And they have other symptoms as well, such as muscle pain, uh, mood change, sleep disturbance. Uh, they often gain weight uh, and various other symptoms. So it's defined on symptoms alone, which always makes it a difficult category for medicine, along with many other similar disorders. The ME Association says that it currently affects about a quarter of a million people in the UK. Would you say that number is fairly accurate? Well, it all comes down to definition. If you use a broad definition, which includes, for example, also people who have comorbid, you know, concurrent depression, anxiety, it's probably commoner than that, so maybe up to 1% to 2% of the population. If you go for a narrow definition, it comes down to about 0.2%, 0.3%. It's a bit like blood pressure. It all depends on where you draw the line. Yes. But the one thing we can say is that this is certainly a definable illness in the population, and it does present a not inconsiderable burden in general practice in primary care. Yep. Now, it's been in the news recently because of a potential cause that was put forward, this uh, xenotropic murine leukaemia virus-related virus, and we'll be hearing more about that later. But there is a viral element to chronic fatigue syndrome, isn't there? Could you take us through that? Yes, there certainly is. I mean, this has been known for now well over 100 years. People can develop what were sometimes called post-infectious fatigue syndromes or post-infectious neurasthenia syndromes after not just viruses, but a, a host of other infective organisms. So uh, typhoid, for example, uh, brucella, uh, and many other organisms seem to have the capacity to trigger a prolonged fatigue syndrome. And if you look at uh, nicely conducted longitudinal studies, for example, it's very clear that uh, certain uh, viruses can do this more than others. Uh, glandular fever being the classic one. Mm -hmm. And glandular fever, for reasons that still remain largely unknown, seems to be able to trigger uh, more chronic fatigue and chronic fatigue syndrome than most other infections. But what I think was unusual here was 
in given the heterogeneity of chronic fatigue syndrome and its somewhat blurred boundaries, uh, the claim that they'd actually found the cause in the vast majority of people they studied was always rather implausible. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not the first time that a cause has been suggested, um, and patients seem to tend to want to, to cling on to that. Do you know why that is? It's certainly not the, 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 the first time that a single unitary cause has been suggested. Um, but to be honest, I, I don't think that's the right way to look at this illness. I think it's much more multifactorial uh, in the same way that, for example, heart disease, you know, having a heart attack is the end product of a lot of things. I think for some people, however, the, any suggestion of a social or psychological component to illness there are some people who just do find that very stigmatizing and, you know, really don't like that at all and would prefer there to be a single, unitary, neat, simple explanation, um, preferably a viral or immunological cause like that. I'm afraid I think the world's a bit more complicated than that. Okay. So if you're a GP and a patient presents with um, CFS-like symptoms, what can actually be done for them? Well, I mean, the first thing to do is make sure you've got the right diagnosis. And every year we pick up people, you know, who've come along with what looks like a chronic fatigue syndrome. But when, you know, you look at it more closely, there's actually an alternative medical diagnosis. So, mm-hmm. okay. and of course, most GPs, you know, most doctors do that automatically. But nevertheless, it's very, very important to stress. First of all, make sure you've got the right diagnosis. Okay. And what would the next step be? Well, the next step then is, you know, the, the model that we use at the moment, unsatisfactory though it may be, is that, you know, it's a bit like being in a hit and run accident. You know, you've been hit by a car. We don't need to know the number plate of the car that hit you in order to rehabilitate someone who's been in a road traffic accident. Nor when we're dealing with CFS, do we know, need to know precisely what virus it was that you had and when. Um, as researchers and academics, you know, we've spent years investigating these things, yes. and it's very interesting. But it doesn't actually affect treatment. And treatment, very similar in you know, large areas of medicine, is about rehabilitation. There are good and bad ways of managing this illness. And this is now we start to look at, you know, all the secondary effects that have happened to you. And a lot of people with CFS have got depressed, no question about it. And I don't mind, you know, that may upset people, but that's just simply true. We also know that a lot of people who've had depression are more at risk of developing CFS. So if people have got depression, let's not ignore it. We're going to treat that. Some people have also got themselves into very unhelpful patterns of activity. They do too much get exhausted then they do too little to recover Mm -hmm. we're going to look at sleep hygiene can we improve sleep we're going to look at pain control we're going to look at this whole balance of rest activity sleep uh, energy and exercise we're not going to lie you down on the couch and talk about your mother because it's entirely irrelevant we're not going to go you know doing more and more tests to find out well what was the virus because frankly even if we found it there's nothing we're going to do about it we're going to be in the business of rehabilitation. So it's a very pragmatic approach to... It is a very pragmatic approach. That's absolutely right. And it may well be in 100 years' time, people look back and laugh at our pathetic and puny approaches to this illness. So be it. But it's an approach that works. Um, you know, it's about improving uh, control of illness. It's about improving management. It's about improving um, quality of life. 
uh, improving the control of symptoms. And many people will do very well on this approach. Okay. So you mentioned there that people sometimes do get upset by having a psychological therapy approach to to treatment. Presumably, there's some evidence behind what you do. Yes. I mean, uh, funny enough, I didn't mention the word psychological therapy, unless you mean by the management of depression, although that can sometimes be a very biological approach. It's a rehabilitative approach that certainly, of course, takes into account social and psychological factors, of sure. But it's the same approach that's often used to help cancer patients, rheumatoid arthritis patients. Any patients with chronic diseases are helped by this approach. I mean, the technical jargon term, I mean, it's been bandied a lot around is cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. But, you know, I, I do emphasize that this is, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be seen as, you know, the, 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 the Viennese psychiatrist with the beard lying on the couch and asking about, you know, your first few days of life. It's not about that at all. And it's actually very pragmatic. And, you know, at no time at all will anyone doing this, you know, seek to convince a patient, oh, no, you didn't have ME after all, because they do. And at no time at all should anyone seek to convince them that this is a psychological disorder, because, first of all, those terms are pretty meaningless in this day and age, and second, it may well not be. You know, we're dealing the ear of the brain. We think the causes lie in the brain, and we don't think they lie in the muscles or in the immune system, I should say that, but we do think they lie in the brain. And these words start to become meaningless. What we know from the studies is for people to get better, they don't have to change their views of what's wrong with them. They don't have to alter, you know, we don't have to get into these kind of Cartesian battles that, that no one uh, ends up a winner. What, but what we do need to look at is how they use rest, exercise, sleep, and so on, and how they, you know, and how they manage symptoms. In, in other words, the kind of down-the-line consequences. When those change, the research shows people start to get better. We briefly mentioned XMRV there. In October of last year, the Lombardi team, based in the US, published a paper in the journal Science in which they suggested that a novel virus, this XMRV, could cause the syndrome. The paper's garnered some controversy, and one scientist who's looked at it in closer detail is Cathy Sudlow. Cathy's a clinical senior lecturer and honorary consultant neurologist at the University of Edinburgh. She's actually written a response to this paper, which is due to be published in Science soon. And she has also written up her experience of that in the BMJ this week. So, Cathy, for a start, could you describe the Lombardi study for us? It was a study looking to see whether a particular newly discovered virus called XMRV, uh, which is a new retrovirus, which had been found in prostate cancer patients, they wanted to see if it was associated with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And so they did what's called a case control study. Um, they had samples from patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and samples from people without chronic fatigue syndrome, mm -hmm. healthy controls. And they used a variety of viral detection methods to compare the cases with the controls and they found an excess of the virus, a very large excess of the virus in the samples from the cases as compared with the controls. Okay, so they thought that this might have something to, to do with CFS then, being a, a causative agent. Um, yes. Now, for people who are listening who might not pay much attention to basic science journals, science is a prestigious one, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's not a journal I read 
an enormous amount because it, it, it often has articles that have a lot of laboratory science in them and that's not something that I um, do a great deal of myself. And it covers the whole spectrum of scientific discovery, really, mm-hmm. from climate change to things that are relevant to everyday medicine. And so when there is an article that's relevant to everyday clinical practice and I hear about it, then I would take an interest. That doesn't happen very often. Um, but you did take an interest in this particular paper, and you looked a little further into the methodology of their study, didn't you? Because the papers seemed to be suggesting that there was a very big excess of the, the presence of this virus in the samples from patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'm not an expert in chronic fatigue syndrome, but I knew from my own clinical work as a neurologist and from talking to colleagues who know a great deal about the field that there'd been interest in viruses as potential causative factors or triggers. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you've heard from Simon Wesley, a causal link for some cases may have been identified, but there's there's never been a suggestion that there's one virus that's predominant. And there's always been, I think, a feeling that there were a number of other factors potentially contributing to the syndrome. So I thought it would be interesting to find out a little bit more about what this paper was claiming. So I read it through in quite a lot of detail. And what did you find? Well... I'm an epidemiologist, so um, I'm very interested in the methods that people use to make comparisons between cases and controls. And what I found mainly was a description of the laboratory methods. Mm -hmm. But what I couldn't find in there was very much information about how the cases with disease, with this condition, had been selected, exactly where they'd come from, and in particular how the controls had been selected to make sure that they were um, an unbiased comparison group mm. and to me that seemed to be one of the most important potential um, missing bits of information from this paper which might help us to assess whether the finding was accurate reliable repeatable um, yes. and generalizable to other patients with this condition since the paper was published there have been a few more studies that have tried to replicate these results um, what have they found The original study in science, it's clear from the paper that the patients were recruited from the United States and they described that they'd been recruited from areas of outbreaks of chronic fatigue syndrome. So some cases of chronic fatigue seem to occur in clusters. Others seem to occur uh, more sporadically and they may have different causes. Mm -hmm. Um, But whatever, these patients came from the United States and subsequently there have been... three studies that I'm aware of um, that have been published that have looked for the virus in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm -hmm. And they've looked um, at samples from the UK in two cases and in one case samples from the Netherlands. So the paper just mentioned from the Netherlands was actually published in the BMJ last week. And so it's available online for free on bmj.com. I'm now joined on the phone from a cafe in Holland by one of the researchers in that paper, Jos van der Meer is a professor of internal medicine at Rabaud University in Nijmegen. He's been studying infectious diseases and the host response to them, and particularly chronic fatigue syndrome. Jos, we heard from Cathy there that the patients in the Lombardi study were all from a cluster of chronic fatigue syndrome that appeared in the States. How did you recruit the patients in your study? The, the patients we studied yes. were all sporadic cases that came to our uh, outpatient clinic. We wanted to be fast, so we, we needed 
material which we had thrown away so we and we needed lymphocytes mm. so we had to go to a cohort we did a, a cohort of patients uh, which were very well defined and actually which we had used for other viral studies and immunological studies um, with match controls and then you looked for the presence of this XMRV virus in them yes. um, can you take us through your results yeah so in 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 none of the patients and none of the controls we got any signal uh, that there was uh, really the genomic material of this virus uh, present and we it really scrutinized that with high sensitivity uh, and high specificity PCRs. And we used the same PCRs as the Lombardi group did. Um, and we really challenged our, our own results, redid it and redid it, really to find anything. Actually, if we put in uh, our, all our positive controls, we had the virus just by luck, by sheer luck, in our urology department because of the prostatic cancer connection. They were, they were uh, urologists who were looking into the virus. So we had the virus. And so we had this uh, kind of a head start. And so we, we could do beautifully uh, positive controls, which were all doing what they should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the patient material really was negative. Okay. So does and that. Of course, we're not alone in that. Uh, there are now at least two other cohorts that are found negative. And I have heard uh, rumors from the US that other people can't uh, uh, also can't confirm uh, the Lombardi data. Okay. So, does that, so do you think you've really refuted the role of XMRV in chronic fatigue syndrome? I'm, I think I'm done, I'm done with this. If, if, if the two bridge groups. Uh, don't find the virus. Uh, we don't find it, and there is a, according to the rumors, at least one American group uh, with with a good virology support who uh, couldn't find anything. I think this is this is a wrong track, and uh, probably there is some kind of contamination in the Lombardi lab. Okay. Or it is peculiar for this cohort they looked at. Okay. But for us, it's a closed book now, I would say. I, I don't have much much urge to, to go deeper into this matter. Okay. So if you're closing the book on this virus particularly, are you doing any other research that's looking into this? We're very much open to, say, other uh, say virological triggers. Right now, we're more on the track to say it's, it's not so... Uh, important whether you get Epstein-Barr virus or a flu or uh, fuel fever or um, any other causative organism. The, the, the interesting part, to my mind, is more at the neurobiology of this. What, what, what's happening at the brain at that point in time? How is uh, the uh, neurotransmitter system at the level of the brain being deranged and why uh, does that give rise to the fatigue these people sense? And how is this maintained? That's, that's, for me, those are the major questions right now. So, XMRV doesn't appear to be the single cause of chronic fatigue syndrome. But even if it were, it wouldn't affect the outcome for the patient. The syndrome would still be treated pragmatically with the aim of mitigating its symptoms. 
I'll leave you with a final word from Simon Wesley about the future for the research into this disease. And I, but I do think about this particular episode, you know, the XMRV story. I don't want people to go around thinking that science isn't making progress in this area, because it is. I'm not so involved now as I used to be, but I'm still, you know, watching out what's going on. And we know so much more than we did 20 years ago as a result of careful, painstaking research by a large number of people. I don't think we're going to get that sudden Eureka Archimedes moment before which everything was dark, after which everything is light. I think it will be a gradual, steady series of small steps forward. And I really do hope that, you know, doctors and medical scientists in all sorts of disciplines get more involved in this area because we certainly need it. It's an under-researched area particularly to bring in people from right across the board of medicine and to get involved in this area. And um, I can just tell you that you'd be surprised to learn that it's actually very enjoyable and very rewarding. And we, we want people to engage in this area and help move it forward uh, in a steady fashion. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be hearing from doctors in Zimbabwe about the health of the nation and we'll find out all about a measure for sex life expectancy. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.